Well, thanks, Natalie. Uh, again, uh, good morning and welcome to you. Uh, welcome to Auckland AV. My name's Rowan, if I didn't say that earlier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been working, starting this new series last week and then this week, as Jacob said, in the Songs of the King, looking at the songs that Scripture holds out for us and what they're pointing forward to and, and why we sing and what we sing about, seeing different aspects of who our God is and what He's done for us. So why don't we pray together now that God would help us to see where this incredible song is pointing us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for bringing us together today. Thanks for your word, that it is living and active. And we pray as we look at this psalm, written over 3,000 years ago, as we think through what you were saying through it, that you would fix our eyes on the future of the world and see its incredible relevance for us today. Shape us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, hope is something that all of us love and hold on to. Hope is something that we, we, we think about often. We have hopes for our health, hopes for our, our growth, our, our happiness, our jobs, our relationships, our future. In his acceptance speech, the incoming Prime Minister of this country just a, a month ago um, said this line that the media claimed resonated with all Kiwis across the country, and it was this. Here it is on the screen. Thank you, New Zealand, because from all over this great country, you have reached for hope. Apparently, that captivated us as a nation, and people thought maybe there is hope. I don't know, but we'll think about that a little bit later. All of us have hopes. But the important question for us to think through is not what do we hope for, but what is our hope in? Not what do we hope for, but what is our hope in? The passage Natalie just read for us is a song describing a father's hope for his child. Now, all of us have hopes for our children. It's so incredible to see John and Lily up here and thinking through their hopes for Eliza and trusting in God. We, we all have hopes for our children. Maybe if we don't have children, there are still hopes we have, hopes that the children will, will, will lead this next generation well or Perhaps you're out shopping and they're screaming and you've got hopes that they just shut up so that you can have a bit of peace and quiet. And you'd be like, oh, we all have hopes for children. But in Psalm 72, we see the hope of this father for his child and the hope of the entire world come colliding together. Now, this father that we read about here in Psalm 72 is not just any old father, but he's the king of Israel, King David. And it comes to us in the book of the Psalms, which is kind of the book of songs of the Old Testament. And the book of Psalms is, is actually five books, um, creatively called book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. Right? The five books of the Psalms. And the second book that this Psalm is in are all about the songs and prayers of David. They chronicle this nation's most remarkable feature. As they sing these Psalms, they sing of a strength, a feature of Israel. See, Israel in ancient times was remarkable, uh, but not the way that nations like Egypt or Greece or Rome were remarkable. It wasn't that Israel as a nation were extraordinarily powerful. They weren't. They were a relatively small nation. Uh, and to all appearances, it looked like an insignificant nation. It wasn't that they were particularly clever and they didn't produce Socrates or Plato. They didn't leave a legacy of cultural kind of treasures. No great artworks or sculptures or pyramids have come to us from Israel. But they are remarkable as a nation for their hope. And that's what's left its mark on the history of the world. 
As this song comes to us at the end of the second book of, of Psalms, we, we hear a song of hope, a prayer of hope. And we know that it's a prayer of hope and we know that it's from David because of verse 20. Have a look on the screen. The prayers of David, son of Jesse, are concluded. Not very song-like, not very poetic, but there you get this end moment that, all right, we've finished the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. And we say that this song, this psalm, is a prayer full of hope for a son that has remarkable implications, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world. It's probably King David's last prayer, or at least very much nearing the end of his life. And so you can imagine his hopes for his child to, to lead this nation Israel. They're going to be vividly on the front of his mind. Now, who was King David? He's probably the greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament. But the people of Israel, you've got to understand, they didn't originally need a king. They wanted a king. Rather than trust God as their king, they chose Saul, a king that was a man that was head and shoulders above every other person in all of Israel to lead them because he looked like a great leader. And it didn't end well for them or Saul. Then God chose a king after his own heart, a king who trusted him, who trusted God's word and promises. And we hear about King David. Not only here in the Bible, but also from archaeological evidence. I've got a picture here of what's called the Tel Dan inscription. It's a stone that was found in Israel, and it's got an inscription there that says House of David. So outside the Bible, we've found other archaeological evidence that speaks of this House of David. It speaks of the way that they smashed the House of David. It's a bit of propaganda that's written from this other king that is there. It claims to have defeated him. But what we hear is this David is a real guy in a real time in this nation's history with a real request. We're told in verse 5 um, that it's a request of Solomon. Now, Psalms often start out with a kind of little subheading that's actually there in the original. They call it verse 0. It says this, of Solomon. Uh, and that's actually in the original Hebrew. So this prayer of David is of Solomon. It doesn't mean by Solomon. It means concerning Solomon, because Solomon was David's son. But as you hear this song. As you listen to what David is asking, we begin to see that David's hopes for his son are far greater than what any earthly king could ever ask for. It's a prayer that expresses the hope of Israel, that a, that a wonderful, powerful, extraordinary expectation and anticipation of God might find its way in to this nation Israel. Well, as David hands over the reins to his son. He prays for his son's character. That's point number two today, the character of the king. Have a look at verse one. God, give your justice to the king and your righteousness to the king's son. We live in a world where, by and large, our leaders aren't great. We have leaders across the world that exploit others, leaders who lie and cheat and get their own way. We almost universally recognize, don't we, that, that a good leader is one who does things that are right and just and fair. In 1 Samuel 8, when, when, God, um, called, sorry, when, when Israel called out for a king against God, God told them that if you want a king, the king will rule you horribly. Have a look at it, 1 Samuel 8, 11. God said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you that you want. <laughs> 
He will take your sons and put them to use in his chariots on his horses, running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for use as commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, or to make weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, your donkeys, and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of all your flocks, and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you'll cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. The people refuse to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us and fight our battles. <laughs> and what we have is the history of kings through Israel and our world today that, well, they suck. <laughs> they don't do what is right. This is the reality. They consistently take things for themselves. But David's prayer, David's prayer for his son Solomon is not that he just might be righteous and just, unlike the kings that God said would come and rule them, but that God would give his son Solomon God's righteousness and God's justice. See, it's no good us setting the bar for what righteousness and justice is, for what right living is, because we always fall short. We always end up serving ourselves. We always end up twisting God's good way that he's made us. Here at the end of David's life, as he reflects on his own righteousness, I'm sure Uriah the Hittite is not far from his mind. Do you remember Uriah? The man David murdered to cover up his own adultery? Uriah was the husband of the woman who is now his son Solomon's mother. I can imagine there's a reflection, can't you? As he lies there praying this last prayer, singing this last song, that his son would not be like him. And so he prays that his son would have God's righteousness. Not his own righteousness, nor Solomon's righteousness. Not his own way of living, but God's way. He would be a king that, verse 12, would judge God's people with righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. A perfect king under whom wrongs will be put right and, and, and perfectly kind of pu pushed out. Right would be perfectly sent. <laughs> Grievances would be handled honestly. Injustices would be corrected properly and rightly, not only punishing wrong, but eradicating all together the idea of evil. I want you to imagine for a moment a king that ruled with God's righteousness and his justice. What, what would that be like? Can you imagine a society where evil doesn't reign and where wrong is not the currency of normality? It's no surprise in verses 3 to 7 that David predicts that a life under such a king would be extraordinarily good. Look at verse 3. May the mountains bring well-being to the people and the hills righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted among the people, help the poor, crush the oppressor. May the king be like rain that falls on the cut grass, like spring showers that water the earth. May the righteous flourish in his days and well-being abound until the moon is no more. I need to imagine what it would be like to have such a king and live in such society. What would that be like? Well, that word well-being there in verses 3 and 7 
is probably the most famous of all Hebrew words in the Hebrew language. It's the word shalom, which, which means peace. It means well-being in every respect. It's this picture of oh, what every Hebrew and every human actually wants. It's extraordinarily good. The world as it should be. As David prays for his son, he prays that he would act as this king in a righteous way. That would see a world prosper. It's funny, our world seems to have forgotten that prosperity is the fruit of righteousness. It's the fruit of right living, not wrong living. Of doing what is right, not doing what we want. And that right living, that righteousness comes from recognizing the one who made us and treating him rightly. Not the way we define it, but the way our maker defines it. And that is David's prayer. That his son would rule rightly. And through doing that, the world would prosper. And that's where we start to see point number three, the reign of the king. The reign of the king. We see the massive hopes that David has for his son and the extent of his reign. It's incredible. Look at verse eight. May he rule from sea to sea. Now, in Auckland, that's only two kilometers, right? But, but this, is, this is huge. This is like, look what he keeps saying, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. It's a picture of the whole world. May desert tribes kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coasts and islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow in homage to him. All nations serve him. You couldn't criticize David for praying on a small scale, could you? Like that's huge. Could, would my son be the king of the entire world? That's a big prayer. That's a huge prayer. And what's mentioned here, these limits, they're the limits of the known world of David's time. It is no small prayer at all. It's that his son might be king over the whole earth. And then he prays and asks God that there'd be this picture of, of universal submission to his son. It's part of us that feels, oh, is this right to be praying that? But a son who leads with God's righteousness, who leads rightly and who, who brings justice and goodness. Can you imagine that? A world that is led by a leader who speaks the truth, who speaks God's good into it. And all will submit to him is his prayer. Some willingly and with glad submission to such a king, but for others who want to rebel, they will lick the dust. The enemies of God and David's son will lick the dust. Now, one of the difficulties we have when we hear of such hopes one has for their son is that those who've held these sort of sized dreams in the past, particularly in the last hundred years, have been evil megalomaniacs, right? There have been people that have done all sorts of horrific things. Hitler, Stalin, um, Mussolini, Kim Jong-il. Like there have been people who have done all sorts of atrocities. But David's hope was of a perfectly righteous king who would rule not just Israel, but all things. I want you to imagine that for a moment. Can you imagine where evil is eradicated? Where all submit to a king who is good. Oh, how good it would be. Well, next, have a look at the work of this king. What David prays his son will do. Point number four, the work of the king. Verse 12. For he will rescue the poor who cry out. And the afflicted who have 
No helper. He will have pity on the poor and helpless and save the lives of the poor. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious in his sight. Can you show me a king in this world that views the people who serve them as precious? What an incredible prayer to pray for his son. The powerful in this world, life is so often cheap. People end up being collateral damage to a bigger vision, a bigger purpose, a bigger future, but not to this king. It's the weak, it's the needy, it's the oppressed who who benefit from the righteousness of David's son. Can you imagine affliction being ended? Can you imagine poverty being a thing of the past that was just something that we didn't understand anymore? That oppression and violence were concepts that we had completely forgotten. Never did you lock your house or think, did I lock my car or or worry about insurance or anything like that. Imagine living in a world like that. What would it be like? Imagine that was possible. Well, we get to hear what that would be like in verse 16. David prays that the fruit of this righteous king would be prosperity. May there be plenty of grain in the land. May it wave on the tops of the mountains. May its crops be like Lebanon. May people flourish in the cities like grass of the field. It's a picture of abundance, of not having to worry where anything comes from, not having to worry about that next next paycheck or that next meal or what will happen to our finances or our future. It's going, we've been given it all. This is great. It is incredible, incredible blessing. Now, sure, there might have been moments in David's life where Israel as a nation approached this level of peace and prosperity, but only in part and only for a second before evil reigned again. Another enemy raised its ugly head or David himself was overcome with his own unrighteousness. And so David prays for his son that the reign of his son would last forever. This is astonishing. Point number five, the longevity of the king. Verse five. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Or verse 15. May he live long. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May prayer be offered for him continually and may he be blessed all day long. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. As long as the sun shines, may his fame increase. May all nations be blessed by him and call him blessed. Talk about big prayers, right? Incredible. It makes me think, my prayers are so often so small. Aren't yours? David wants the righteousness of God to reign through his son forever, without end. As long as the sun shines and the moon rises, David wants his son to be reigning and righteous. And at this point, if you weren't thinking it already, you're starting to go, hey, David, this feels a bit much. (laughs) Like, I know you love your kid and all, but this is kind of wrong. I mean, if any of you were praying prayers like this about your children, I'd come and sit next to you and we'd have a little chat and work out what's kind of going on. kind of help you know that your child is special, but not that special. And, you know, there's probably some issues here, right? Because not only is it incredibly unlikely, it's a hope, a prayer that's based entirely on wishful thinking. 
I want my son or my child to be great. I want them to be the best. But who says they will? Why does that matter? But it's not so for David. It's not wishful thinking. You see, the thing with David's hope is that like Israel's hope as a nation, it's anchored not in wishful thinking about what he would like for his son, but in the promise of the true and living God. In the promise of a true and living God. Back in Genesis 18, God had said to Abraham this. Genesis 18, verse 18. Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations of earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Do you hear that? The blessing David prays for his son is the same blessing that God promised Abraham's descendant. David is Abraham's descendant and so is his son Solomon. He has a promise from God to say, this is what God is going to do through you. Through him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And he will keep the Lord's way. Did you see that? He is to become a great and righteous and good leader and a good nation. That's not the only promise that David had. Come with me to 2 Samuel 7. When your time comes, God says to David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. David is just praying in line with what God has said. He's not some crazy megalomaniac prayer person that wants his son to be the best in the world. He wants God's kingdom to come. He wants to pray in line with the promises of God. Friends, that's the type of big and bold prayers God wants to come to him with. Prayers that are aligned with his plans and promises that they would come to fruition. It makes me think, how big are my prayers? How big are your prayers? That God would see his name held high. That God would see this future come to fruition. The thing we can learn from David is how to pray, how to sing God's promises and plans back to him. To align our hopes and desires with God's, not our own. How often are our prayers small and focused on us? Yes, we can bring all things to our Father and he hears us and he loves to hear us. We must recognize the trajectory of the whole of humanity is heading towards David's son, who will rule perfectly. But if you know anything of the life of Solomon, you know God only partially answered David's prayers about his son. 1 Kings 4.24 tells us that Solomon had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, from Tipsar to Gaza, and all over the, the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all his surrounding borders. You're like, oh, that sounds like what David prayed for him. 1 Kings 10 documents that the queen of Sheba, another nation that was spoken of in this prayer, bought Solomon a tribute, including gold. And, and, and the tribute also came from the kings of the West. Solomon even had a fleet of ships from Tarshish, 1 Kings 10.22 tells us. And every king bought his presents, articles of silver and gold and garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. It feels like some of this came to fruition in King Solomon. But as you know, the prayer of David 
isn't an experience God answered fully in Solomon. He wasn't the king his father prayed he would be. We still live in a world full of evil and oppression and suffering. We live in a world where we cause evil and oppression and suffering. We live in a world where death still reigns as our greatest enemy. So you've got to ask, what do we make of this great hope, of this song of David that seems to be a prayer that has been not answered? A prayer that's just gone kind of silent for centuries. Well, in Matthew 2 verse 11, some wise men from the east follow a star to a stable in Bethlehem. And this is what Matthew records. And I want you to hear the song of Psalm 72 ringing in Matthew's words. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. You start to hear in this child some of the echoes of what David prayed for his son. This child grew and news about him spread. Matthew 11 verse 5, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the poor are told the good news. And you start to go, hang on a minute. This is sounding like the the prayer of Psalm 72 being fulfilled. I want you to try and imagine what it would have been like to have been a Jew in the first century, to have known Psalm 72, David's last prayer recorded um, in Psalms, or there are other ones in the book of Psalms, but in in that book of David, the last prayer, and you would have known his prayer for his son, his, his descendant to be king. And you're there on a mountainside one day in Galilee, and you hear a man stand up and say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, the Sermon on the Mount It's not just nice words that put forward a lovely picture of who the blessed are or a song that's really about us and what we should be like. And if we are poor or humble or hungry, how great is this? They are a fulfillment of the picture of the son of David. His name is Jesus. And Matthew records that he is the great, 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 great grandson of King David. And as we start to recognize who Jesus is, We see what he'd come to do, his righteousness, always living rightly, always doing what is right, his ability to forgive sin, our biggest oppressor. And that death has been conquered by his resurrection as he died and rose again. We meet the son David's prayers find their fulfillment in. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he records these words of Jesus. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Friends, it could not be clearer, could it? Could it? That in Jesus we meet the King David was praying for. In Jesus, we meet the one who brings peace, shalom, in the all of humanity. In Jesus, we meet the righteousness of God, not just his own righteousness, but God's righteousness himself. 
We meet the one who defeats our greatest adversary, the devil, and who forgives our sin and offers us entry into his kingdom when he returns, where there'll be prosperity and no more sickness or mourning or crying or pain. We live in such an amazing age and time. Sometimes I think, oh, it would have been great to live around the time of King David and seen some cool things and been like, wow, it would have been amazing to see the battles that were won and it even would have been great to have seen the work of Jesus on earth living in Jesus' time, but we live in an even better age, an age post his resurrection, where we have seen that Jesus has been exalted on high to the king and has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And we now have this opportunity to pray big, to pray in line with God's promises that, that Jesus would come back and rule rightly, to share the news of Jesus, to see people move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to see people move from a kingdom of oppression to a kingdom of justice and righteousness and a kingdom that lasts forever. Not by bringing in a better political leader or just making people a little bit better in their actions, but by coming to the king who's died for us and trusting that he is risen again and that he is the king David prayed for and trusting that when he comes back, he will put things right then. And we have this privilege at this very moment to pray big and ask God to bring more and more people to come to know him. We just saw in in 2 Peter, that God's patience is so that more people might come to salvation. We live in an age of incredible opportunity where we see the king coming back and we get a glimpse of what it will be like in Philippians 2.10. At that name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, can you see David, David was praying for Jesus. He was pointing us to Jesus. Everything he prayed about, everything he sung about, we have now in Jesus. As the gospel of Jesus has been and is being taken to all the nations on earth, the blessings of God's kingdom are reaching every part of the world as people put their trust in him and God lives in them by his spirit. Isn't that extraordinary? You think about the kingdom that is promised The kingdom that that David prayed for has begun. And by sharing the news of who Jesus is and what he's done, we get to take part in the spread of that kingdom as we stand and long for and look for the day that Jesus comes back. Friends, this song that David prays, this prayer, is even more magnificent today than it was 3,000 years ago. It's even more comforting, even more encouraging, even more powerful because the King has come. He's come and lived and died and risen again. If only we have eyes to see the song David sung and the prayer that he prayed is being fulfilled in front of our eyes every single day as we look forward to the return of Jesus. John in Revelation 11 promises what will happen when that comes back. And you can hear the echoes of Psalm 72. Revelation 11 verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Isn't that what you look forward to? In Revelation 21, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. 
Friends, one day we won't need to imagine what it is like to have no more mourning or crying or pain. We don't need to imagine what it will be like. We don't have to worry about where things are coming from. We don't have to imagine the incredible goodness of a king who is just and right, that all evil being put away with because he will have arrived. And if we trust in Jesus, that will be our experience and reality. Friends, have you seen what this song points us to? The justice, the goodness of King Jesus and the society that he brings in. These last words of David in Psalm 72 leave us positioned on the edge of God's future kingdom, kind of waiting breathlessly as the glory of God fills the earth. We're waiting for the return of Jesus. C.S. Lewis in uh, the book, The Last Battle, writes about the return of Aslan and his eternal reign that follows. And he describes the end of the life for the children in, in, in in the Narnia Chronicles and what it will be like after life as they knew it had ended. He says this, All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth had read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, the fiction that C.S. Lewis wrote points to a reality you and I have. If we trust in Jesus, we look forward to the great story that goes on forever in right relationship with God and his people. Because of Jesus, and if you trust in him, will you let that hope, that certainty, that promise of what God has said will happen, that he will do, will you let it shape your expectations and hopes and dreams? Will let it shape the way you live your life, to sing your life for the King, to align your emotions and your will and your purpose and your being with the direction God is taking all humanity, that Jesus is coming back and He is the King that will rule. And so as we face the ups and downs of political rules of our time, of all sorts of evil and wrong and hardship, we can stand with a greater future, a greater picture of that future. Because Jesus has come, He has lived, He has died, He has risen again, and He is coming back as the King to rule this world. So can I encourage you today? Sing the song of Psalm 72 with your life, with more clarity than David ever could, because you trust in Jesus, who is God's King. Let's pray together. Father, today as we sit here, as we think about the way you've worked throughout history and about your promises that you've made so clear to us, we thank you so much for David's prayer. The prayer that you've answered with a big yes in Jesus. Lord, we long for this world to be ruled rightly. We long for pain and suffering and injustice and oppression to be done away with. And so we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on the future that is to come. And while we wait to proclaim the spread of Jesus' kingdom, to point people to Jesus' death in our place, to trust in that reality, that he has died and he has taken the penalty that we deserve so we could stand forgiven. Lord, would you captivate us with a picture of that future reality that we might not live just for the here and now, but that we might live for the reality that's to come. And so speak in the here and now of that. Would you help us to be a church that has our eyes fixed on Jesus and lives for him as our king? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.